If you will recall, last Lord's Day we talked about the concept of the Holy Spirit. And there were some of you that asked for copies of that sermon, and there are CDs on the shelf in the foyer of last Sunday's sermon on the Holy Spirit. Today we're going to talk about miracles from the standpoint of is it reasonable to believe in miracles. Next Lord's Day, as we announce, we will talk about divine healing and miracles. And then the last Sunday of the month, we will talk about speaking in tongues. So I hope you'll be available for these. You'll make these available to you, and you will benefit. We'll all benefit from these studies. You see, when we read the Gospels, When we read the story of the life of Jesus, we find ourselves reading of miracles. In fact, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all contain numerous miracles. We read of a storm one night on the Sea of Galilee, a storm where the waves were so violent the ship the disciples were in was in danger of actually sinking. And yet Jesus simply said, Peace, be still. And the sea was suddenly calm. There's another time where Jesus has been preaching all day to a group of people, a large group of people. It's late in the day, and Jesus doesn't want to send the people away hungry. So He takes a young boy's sack lunch, five loaves and two fish. And He multiplies that young boy's lunch, and He feeds the multitude, and we have twelve baskets of leftovers. And then there was the time that those ten lepers cried out to Jesus for help, and He healed them. And the blind men near Jericho had their sight restored by Jesus. And even more impressive than all of these was when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, and He said, Lazarus came forth, and Lazarus came from the tomb still bound by the grave clothes. And those are just a few of the many miracles that Jesus performed during His lifetime. John refers to them as signs in our text in John chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31. John's bringing his account of the life of Christ to a close. He says, "...many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe." that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. John says they're signs. And yet the Bible does not confirm the miracles of Jesus. There are a lot of... It does not confine itself, rather, to the miracles of Jesus. There are a lot of other miracles in the Bible. Miracles throughout the Old Testament. That flood in the days of Noah was miraculous. You read the life of Abraham, you can see miraculous events in the life of Abraham. The exodus from Egypt involved numerous miracles. Miracles were widely performed during the kingdom period of the Old Testament and during the time of the prophets. On the other side of the life of Christ, 
Miracles were performed by the apostles from the beginning of the Bible to the end. Things that are miraculous are a prominent feature in the Word of God. Now, what if I asked you this morning, what is a miracle? What would you answer to that? What would your answer be? A miracle has been defined as an event or effect in the physical world, deviating from the known laws of nature or transcending our knowledge of these laws. A wonder or wonderful thing or a marvel. Well, that definition of a miracle is just a little too broad. Because that definition would almost include anything that was new are mysterious to people. When they first were introduced, radio and then later television were sometimes referred to by people as miracles. That definition we just read is a flawed definition of a miracle because that definition is too broad a definition. Because that definition would include things that are simply unusual or things that are simply beyond man's understanding. To me, by that definition, the computer and the Internet are a miracle. In fact, to me, anyone working higher mathematics would be a miracle. To some folks, the thermos would be a miracle. Because the thermos keeps hot food hot and it keeps cold food cold. How does it know? You see? That definition of a miracle is too broad. We understand that the radio and the television, the computer, the microwave and things like that, those things are not miracles. Those things are simply an advanced discovery of men harnessing the laws of nature that have been present from the beginning. There are better definitions of a miracle. C.S. Lewis says a miracle is an interference with nature by supernatural power. That's good. The Westminster Dictionary of the Bible says, Miracles are events in the external world wrought by the immediate power of God and intended as a sign or attestation. They are possible because God sustains, controls, and guides all things and is personal and omnipotent. A miracle, as used in the Bible, is something above and beyond the ordinary laws of nature. It is any action on the part of God. It is an action on the part of God that is direct and immediate and different from the workings of the usual laws of nature. It is supernatural. Now, when you start thinking about miracles in our subject today, is it reasonable to believe in miracles? There are four attitudes about miracles. Did the miracles that we read about in the Bible actually happen? Some folks say that 
these alleged miracles that we read of in the Scriptures were merely misunderstandings. It was simply the primitive, superstitious people of the distant past misunderstood what was happening. Now, I must confess that I have a little trouble, actually more than a little trouble with that concept. I can't get my head around the idea that Abraham and Moses and Daniel, Matthew the publican, Luke the physician, and Saul of Tarsus are naive, superstitious rubes. Okay? You study their lives. And you study their writings. And all of these men were exceptionally competent, well-informed, and quite articulate. The fact is, rather than being out of touch, the writings of those men still have a relevancy far superior to most of the writings and the dribble of our own day and time. And then there are some that say the miracles of the Bible are just out-and-out deceptions. I don't believe it, but Norma says the older I get, the more curmudgeonly I get. Someone with the attitude that the miracles of the Bibles are out-and-out deceptions, who expresses that to me, is likely to not even get a polite answer from me. Whatever else the men that wrote these down were, and might have been, they were good men. That fact of their lives is obvious. Their lives and their teachings combined to advocate the highest principles of ethics that has ever been known. In fact, if you look around this world we live in today, our world would be a lot better place if we had some ethical and moral giants around like Daniel and Paul. You can say what you will about those great men of the past. But to say that they were dishonest deceivers is nothing short of insanity and utterly impossible. Well, then we have a third attitude about miracles. There are those intellectual souls among us today who view the miracle stories of the Bible simply as legends. Things that grew from almost nothing into towering miracle stories. These people readily concede that Jesus, without a doubt, was a powerful personality. And certainly when Jesus came among people, Jesus had a great impact on those people. And as the people told their children stories of the teachings of Jesus, and they told them of the activities of Jesus to their grandchildren, these stories grew until they became legendary. So therefore, you see, what started out as an example of Jesus' personal magnetism ended up as being a miracle. People with that attitude, 
that these are stories of the miracles of the Bible are simply legends. People with that attitude and that subscribe to that theory show their complete ignorance of the Word of God. Get 144 of those people together and you've got gross ignorance. I want you to think about the men that describe the miracles of the New Testament. The men who describe the miracles of the New Testament in most instances were eyewitnesses. They were writing of what they had actually seen. Matthew and John were not writing down stories and telling stories that had grown legendary through a constant retelling. They were describing the things their own eyes had seen. They were describing the things that their own ears had heard. Luke's descriptions of the miracles of Paul in the book of Acts are nothing short of eyewitness accounts. And then there's a third theory. This is where I come in. This is what I believe. The stories and the miracles we read in the Bible are actual history. They are things that really happened. Jesus really did control nature and perform miracles. Like the time He stilled the tempest and walked on the waters of Galilee. I believe that Jesus really did restore the sight to blind eyes and the hearing to deaf ears. I believe that Jesus actually healed lame bodies and He cured sickness of many kinds. And raising the dead, yes. Jesus was able to do that too. So along with the other miracles of the Old and the New Testament, they really happened. They are real history. Well, is that reasonable? Our scientific age takes a lot of pride in the fact that only the things that are reasonable are the things that are accepted. So that makes us ask the big question. Are the miracles that we read about in this book reasonable? I believe that I can demonstrate that the miracles of the Bible are reasonable. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking about this. It's never possible to prove that a miracle happened. Because proof occurs in the mind of man. And it depends on that person's attitude. And there are some minds in our world today so solidly set against believing in the miraculous that no amount of evidence would ever prove that miracles happened. There are people that have minds like cement, all mixed up and thoroughly And they say miracles couldn't happen. But to someone that's open-minded, and to someone that is a fair-minded observer, 
I do believe that I can demonstrate the reasonableness of the miracles of the Bible. Let's begin with creation. Now you're getting nervous. We're going to start with Genesis 1-1. You're saying, is he going to go all the way to Revelation? No, because if someone does have a lunch, I, I can't multiply it to feed the multitude. But in Genesis 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Nowhere in this book does it undertake to prove the existence of God. Someone reading the Bible, the existence of God is always assumed as obvious. In Psalm 19 and verse 1, David said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. This universe around us, this world we live in, the billions of stars, the galaxies, the planets, the marvelous system of order that we observe in our world is evidence of a divine, creative mind. This earth with its human and its animal inhabitants is a further example of a remarkable architect that designed the whole thing. And the human body, mankind himself, is a constant reminder of the infinite skill of God, the Creator. So, the fact that God created all of this, that's a given. And God did not create this world and then just walk away and say, My work's done. And forget about it. God continues right now to sustain and to operate this world. And He does it primarily through an intricate system of natural laws. And we usually refer to these as the laws of nature. The seasons of the year. The productivity of the soil. The composition of the air we breathe the tight control of temperature variations around the world, gravity, and hundreds of other things all work together to create the laws of nature. And the world has functioned smoothly for thousands of years, just like God set it up. And it gives every indication of continuing to function for thousands of years until God determines it's time to end, end history. Until God determines it's time to end history, regardless of what the climate change people tell us. But God does step in. I want to suggest the manner in which miracles occur. The law of gravity demands that any object be pulled to the earth or fall. The law of gravity is what keeps me standing in one spot. But man, man has the power. You and I have the power to suspend 
We have the power to override the law of gravity if we want to. This marker, if I turn loose of it, it's going to fall to the earth. Just like that. I have the power to suspend gravity. The law of gravity says if I drop this or I turn loose of that, it falls. Gravity pulls it down there. I can suspend the law of gravity and throw it up in the air. You and I can suspend the law of gravity if we want to. Our will makes it possible for this pen or a rock or this book or other objects to rise rather than fall as normal. Oh my. In a similar way, when God wants to, God can suspend or God can override a law of nature. So Jesus could walk on water. A broken body, lame, could immediately become strong. A fig tree could immediately wither and die away. To understand what God does in performing miracles, imagine a very intricate model railroad. Several years ago, we were in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and at the Chattanooga Choo Choo, they had an exhibit there of a, a model railroad that was about the size, it was about 10 feet by 20 feet or more, that layout was. had five trains running simultaneously in simulated towns, and a man standing there in the middle running all of the remote controls. But occasionally, one of those trains would get off the track or would not be moving and you would see the operator stop and reach over and lift one of those locomotives or one of those train cars by hand and set it back on the track or adjust it. That's what God does when He performs a miracle. God intervenes in our world. He suspends the normal functioning of nature's laws. And when God does that, God does it for a purpose. So it is not incredible, and it is not unreasonable, to believe that the God who created this world, the God who installed the various laws of this world, that God might occasionally, for a purpose, suspend some of its laws and operate directly in the affairs of men. C.S. Lewis said that when God performs a miracle, or when God works a miracle, God is simply doing close and small what He normally does on a grand and universal scale. You remember the time that Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish and fed a multitude? 
That is not something totally different from what God normally does. God is always multiplying food. He does it in thousands of fields every year. He does it in all the seas and all the oceans of the world. A handful of grain is planted in the field and hundreds of bushels are harvested. That's God's way under the natural laws of multiplying food. In a similar way, the fish in the sea are constantly multiplying, providing food for man. The only difference is that in that far-off day, when Jesus fed 5,000, Jesus was doing close and small before the eyes of the multitude what He normally does less obviously. It was like that model railroad operator moving that car. It's close and small. When Jesus would heal people of their diseases, He was doing close and small what He normally does on a worldwide scale. Our hospitals, with their skilled doctors and their nurses, they control the environment that we're in when we need healing. And they assist us in the healing process. And yet all of us understand that something has to take place in a person's body. I think you see it most clearly when you have a broken arm. When you go to the doctor and that arm is broken, the doctor sets the arm and the doctor puts it in a cast. But it's nature, it's God that does the actual healing. When Jesus healed in the long ago, it was not something totally different from what He does all the time. It was just more obvious. Jesus was working close and small. You see, folks, it would be unreasonable to think that the God who created the universe, the God who sustains the universe, the God who is concerned about His creation, put it all together, went on a long journey and never came back. It's much more reasonable to think that the God who put all of this into motion is standing close by, intervening from time to time, especially if there's some special reason for Him to do so. The miracles that we read about in the Bible, though, have certain significant characteristics. They all exhibit the character of God. And they all teach truths about God. They are constructive healing miracles. They are never capricious. They are never immoral. And they are never unethical. They are in harmony with all of the established truths of religion. They never contribute to dishonest purposes nor fight against the good. 
They are also consistent with all the ethical principles you read about in the Scriptures. There is an adequate occasion for these miracles in the Bible. They are done for a religious purpose. The miracles of the Bible are always designed to do something. As suggested in the Gospel according to John, the miracles serve as signs of the deity of Jesus. They serve as signs of the power of God. They serve as signs to confirm the word of the apostles. The miracles of the Bible are established not by the number of witnesses, but by the character and the qualification of the witnesses. Those in this book that write about the miracles and who believe in the miracles are the finest people our world has ever known. They are competent to observe. They are careful in their recording of the miracles and they are ethical in their lives. They were all good witnesses. The central miracle of the Bible is the coming of Jesus. And to doubt the miracles of the Bible is to destroy the very heart of Christianity. Because the central miracle of everything was when divinity invaded earth in the form of a man. All the other miracles in there fade to nothing when compared to that. To deny the miracles is to deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. To deny the supernatural is to deny the divinity of God and the existence of God. It's to destroy the concept of heaven and hell. And it's something that would make prayer meaningless and leave Christianity void of its strength and its power. Remember what John said in our text? He said many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe and that believing you might have life through His name. That's why they were written. That we would believe in Jesus Christ. That believing in Jesus Christ we'd have life in His name. It's His invitation as we stand. Thank you.